Let's pray and let's feast on the word. Bless you. (laughs) Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you. And your word says that we don't feast on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we need what you have to say to us today. And thank you that uh, the word that's black and white on the page comes to life by the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we're just saying, please be active in our midst, especially on this particular topic where we explore your written word, which has uh, been a source of controversy and struggle and strife for many, for many centuries. So Holy Spirit, we just stand in need of your counsel today on how do we properly handle these black and white words on pages that we believe to have been passed down to us by the hand and by the authority of God. Uh, We need your help. So Holy Spirit, help us. You be the counselor today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It should be kept in mind that a perfect, omnipotent, and omniscient God would reasonably be expected to have done a better job of it than the Bible had such a God inspired a book. Let me read this again. A perfect, omnipotent, and omniscient God would reasonably be expected to have done a better job of it than the Bible had such a God inspired a book. These are the words of blogger Jim Merritt on a website called The Secular Web, whose URL is infidels.org. And that organization was started actually down the road from me in 1995. I I graduated Baylor that year, and this, uh, this gentleman and his crew had started that organization at Texas A&M. So when I say down the road, I mean that in a Texas sense. It's about three and a half hours away, but it's about down the road. So Merritt goes on to list a bunch of inconsistencies with the Scriptures. And that's nothing new. I mean, the critics of the Bible for years have listed out those inconsistencies. What about some critiques of the Word that are even more culturally have more of a cultural punch. Here's what I mean. In Time Magazine, a blogger named Neil Carter wrote, just last September, September 15th of last year, he wrote this. He wrote an article called, What I Gained When I Lost My Religion. And this is item number three. The ability to accept people I formerly judged. These are his words. Religious belief taught me, for example, to judge the LGBT community for being attracted to anything other than the appropriate sex. It taught me that something is wrong with these people, and while it also taught me I'm supposed to love them and somehow accept them, reach out to them, I'm also supposed to condemn something that lies at the core of their identity. I have found that losing my religion has opened me up to a much wider range of people because I do not have a 2,000-year-old book telling me how I should see the world. I think I'm a better person for this change of mind. Ouch, right? He says a few other things, like since he lost his religion, the parties he goes to are more fun. I was kind of like, that's interesting. (laughs) And he said a couple of things about feeling less guilty all the time and whatnot. Can what God's word says about itself help any of us? Some of us here are ringing true with these things, right? Some of us have the same, some of us are searching, or some of us are outright skeptics. 
many of us have believed in God's word to us, but don't know what to say when our coworkers, colleagues, neighbors come at us with this sort of thing. Can we trust the Bible with its apparent inconsistencies, or as this Neil Carter has said, with its apparent irrelevance, can we trust the Scripture? Well, let's look at what Paul, the first century Jewish convert to Christianity and church planter, says, and then we'll take a look at some of these inconsistencies and some of these <laughs> irrelevances. I hope you guys are cool. I'm, I'm just going to have a fathering moment here. JD, you're welcome to hang out here, but um, can you have a seat, please? And you can play with your flower. Thank you, son. I love you. He's cool. <clears throat> and Sadie, if you want to draw, you can draw too. So my parenting's on trial now. This is great. In front of 200 people. Okay, I love you. Okay, thanks. I don't always know what to do in front of everyone, but at home, I'm really good. Trust me. <clears throat> okay. First century church planner, Paul, he says this about the Word, the Bible. He says this, I'm starting in verse 12 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. So this is Paul writing to his protege, to his mentee, hey, I'm giving you charge of this church that we planted, Ephesus. You run with it. Here's some good counsel for you. In the midst of it, he says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now repeating on this theme, he's going to magnify what he just said again. And he says this, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God, the messenger of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's what the Word says. So we've got the Jim Merritts, the the Neil Carters on this side. We've got Paul on this side. Let's first look at when people like Jim Merritt talk about the Word's inconsistencies, what are they talking about? Maybe you've heard of some of them. But let's just get some of those up and out there so that we kind of deal with the real deal here. I'm going to kind of go through the Scripture kind of in its section. So let's start with the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books of the law, what, what the Jews would consider their, their authority there. Well, gosh, it starts right out the gate, doesn't it? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We have two different creation stories. One says that man came first and then animals. And then chapter 2, it says the animals, excuse me, I, got, I have that wrong. Chapter 1 says the animals came first, then man. And then chapter 2 says man came first, then God gave him the animals. Well, that's confusing, isn't it? What about a little bit later in Genesis four seventeen? It says Cain gets a wife. Well, who's Cain's wife? Right? I mean, if it's one of his sisters, which it is, I mean, it must be, isn't that bad? They don't allow us to do that anymore, do they? Genesis 6 and 7, who actually goes into the ark? Is it all the animals two by two, as Genesis 6 says? Or is it Genesis 7, just seven pairs of clean and seven pairs of unclean animals? Come on, God, what's up? What about Exodus 20.13? God gives a command to the Israelites, don't murder. But just a few chapters before in Exodus 12, God and the angel of death had just perpetrated probably one of the biggest genocides yet in human history. Every firstborn male 
in Egypt was killed. Come on, God. What are you doing? What about the historical books? We get some, some perhaps uh, um, copying errors where Second Chronicles says that Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses, but First Kings says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his horses. That zero makes a big difference, right? Let's move on to the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, right? Have you ever, I actually just read this devotionally, and it scratched my head a little bit. It's Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So do we answer him or not, right? <laughs> this is hard. Let's move to the prophetic books, which are just so bizarre at times. Can you imagine, I mean, this happened to me devotionally. I'm in Ezekiel 4, and I'm listening to Ezekiel the prophet have a conversation with God about whether he's allowed to make a fire out of his own dung or out of cow dung, right? And he's saying, please, God, let me just do it on cow dung because human dung, I've never defiled myself that way, right? Okay, God. And then what about all the Gospels, the harmony problems, right? We've got four accounts of Jesus' life. What was actually written on Jesus' cross, King of the Jews or some other thing? When did Jesus go crazy in the temple? Was it early in his life, in his ministry, as John suggests? Or as all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, can suggest, was it only towards the Passion Week? What is it? How did Judas die? By hanging himself or throwing himself on a sword, right? Who saw Jesus first after the resurrection? All the Gospels disagree with this or on these points, and there's many more. We get to the, the epistles, the letters, right? How do we pick and choose what we take from Paul? I would say today, if there's, you know, we don't take too seriously the admonition about women not speaking in church and wearing a head covering. Otherwise, moms, peace. See you later. We love you, but get a head covering on, okay? However, most of us, and this may be contended at this moment, but most of us are a little bit different about Paul's words on homosexuality, where we say, um, he's, he's, he's got it. You know, it says, don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God, and such are some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. We, for some reason, we're able to, we treat the women one differently than the homosexual one. How do we do that? So, how can Paul, as we just read in 2 Timothy 3, how can Paul say this thing is God-breathed in light of all these textual problems and challenges? And I'm going to invite you right now to suspend all those questions for a moment as we look deeper at this passage. So let's look at 2 Timothy 3 and go through this, then I will come back to these questions, which are the important ones that some of you are asking have asked, or that some of your colleagues and co-workers are asking. It's important that we have a good answer for them. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 17. Let's start in 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul immediately sets up a contrast here, right? Could this also, or could this relate to the Bible? I think it could. Godly people in Christ Jesus, that's most of us here. That's Christians, right? And often we are persecuted, as we just found out from Neil Merritt, or excuse me, Jim Merritt and Neil uh, Carter, these two bloggers. We found out that we are persecuted for believing that a 2,000-year-old book can still have some authority despite some apparent inconsistencies and perhaps some irrelevance, right? 
So there's a contrast here. We've got the followers of Christ Jesus who can be persecuted because of their belief in the Bible. Then we have this other camp. We have evil people. And what's their problem? The problem is that those who are evil, and again, we don't have a, it's hard for us in our culture to call anyone evil. Maybe the only one who fits that category right now would be like ISIS, right? We'd say there's something wrong with ISIS. Those are evil people where they are just cutting people's heads off indiscriminately. Anyways, these evil people, what's the problem? It's they're deceived. And so I wonder, are there biblical truths that they are unwilling to acknowledge? <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you, God. We're, we're, we're training him up. You can hang out here for a little bit. <clears throat> um, okay, so a little contrast there. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15 and uh, we get into this part. But as for you, this is Paul, father, speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, this is the key part here, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. So what I want to grab from this is, notice that the authority of the sacred writings, and for sure Paul was talking about the Old Testament. For sure he was talking about the Pentateuch, those first five books of the law, the historical books that we mentioned that tell about Israel's history, the prophetic books, all these books of the prophets, and the wisdom literature, right? Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon. Those are, for sure, that's what was understood when, when Paul said sacred writings. But notice that there's a great authority here because those scriptures were taught to Timothy. They were lived out. It makes me think of my assistant youth pastor when I was in junior high. His name was Tom Muirhead. And as emotional memories do, they get etched in our hearts. For me, the emotional memory that I have is sitting on my front steps of my house and having Tom Muirhead share with me about the grace of God. And all of a sudden, all the lights went off in my head because I knew that I needed grace. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I was a mess. I knew that my life was falling apart too. My parents had just split up the year before. I was hurting and I was wounded. And here's this man saying, do you understand that you don't have to do anything to earn God's favor? He loves you just the way you are. And all of a sudden, the fireworks go off. And so here's a man giving me the word of God. But because Tom Muirhead himself was an object of the grace of God, because he himself had been sharing, I too am a sinful man, but I've been apprehended by this grace. It made sense to me. So Paul also is saying to here to Timothy, look, you know the sacred writings, but you also know how we've lived them out among you. Okay? So the sacred writings, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Timothy saw that lived out by Paul who gave his whole life so that people could know the love of God. Jeremiah 31. I'm just trying to think of some good ones. How about Isaiah 61? We'll do that. Isaiah 61, 1-2, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. What would Paul have said to Timothy then? He would have said, Our friends tell us that one day Jesus of Nazareth stood up the temple, read that verse, Minus the vengeance part, by the way, just while we're on biblical inconsistencies. But he says that part, 
And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your, in your hearing. And Paul could tell that story to Timothy. So see what I'm saying? The sacred writings are coming alive because they have testimony of how they've been used. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Imagine Paul, Timothy's mentor, who knows these scriptures so well, explaining to him, guess what? This new covenant, this new dispensation, it's now because Jesus has come. See what I'm saying? So the sacred writings were delivered to Timothy by people like Paul and his own parents who knew the story about Jesus. And there's many others. Imagine hearing from Paul. Imagine if Timothy heard from Paul, hey, all these things in Zechariah about Jesus' death, his, his um, birth and his death, uh, these came true in Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Another thing I want us to look at is at the very end there, verse 15, it says, what is the purpose of these sacred writings? Okay, maybe let's, let's maybe put that on the screen if we could. Anita, thank you so much. The purpose of these sacred writings is what? To make someone wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, here's where I think, okay, here's a good test. Does this scripture do this to me? Does this do this to my heart? Does this scripture, does it make me wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? Does it do that? Does it make me wise? Well, what is wisdom? Proverbs says, I realize I'm still doing an internal validity check here, but Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is being of wisdom. Does this book give some fear of the Lord for me? In other words, do I, am I aware now from reading the Scripture that an evaluation is coming that I should care about, that what I do and don't do matters to God? Gosh, it sure does to me. Make me wise for salvation. Does it make me realize that I need a rescue? Absolutely. Once I get the fear of the Lord, I need, I recognize, whoa, I need a rescue here because I'm, I cannot live up to these standards on my own. <laughs> is, is anyone totally distracted? I'm, I'm used to this, but hey, J.D., why don't you come with Brian and Jade for a little bit, okay? I love having you nearby, but why don't you just hang out with Brian and Jade? Thank you. <clears throat> so, wise for salvation, recognize you need a rescue. And how do you need a rescue? By getting better, right? By doing, performing better for God. That's how you need to be rescued, right? No, through faith in Christ Jesus, right? Do these scriptures point out that the rescue comes through faith in Christ Jesus? I believe they do. Okay? Again, I'm just expounding a little bit on these verses to try to build up some thought for when we come back to those Zingers that we got right at the beginning of what the accusations are. People are accusing the Scripture of being inconsistent and irrelevant. So I'm building up a tank here. Maybe it is relevant. Hmm. Let's see. Okay, let's go on to these last two verses then. All Scripture, Paul's just amplifying what he just said. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, some of your versions say inspired by God. It just misses the zing. This is where I think ESV has got it. You know, NIV probably says God breathed. But because of the Greek word there, pneumo is in there, which breath, you know, lungs, it is God-breathed. And it's breathed out by God. And what does it do? Well, it's profitable. That's good. It's not bad. It's not not beneficial. He's saying it's actually beneficial to you. And here's how and why. It's beneficial because it teaches you. It reproves you. That means rebuke. It shows you where you're not doing so well. 
and for correction. It then shows you how to do well and for training in righteousness. With what end result? That the man, woman, messenger of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Man, once you start to open yourself up to the Scriptures, this should be the regular thing that happens. Just this week, Kelsey and I were dealing with some of our finances. Those are always fun conversations in marriages, aren't they? Right? I didn't have an amen on that one. Okay. <clears throat> I guess I'm way off. So, but you know what? I got rebuked by the Scripture. You know, it's so funny. Kelsey and I had just finished telling our um, engaged couples that, hey, one of, a good rule of thumb once you get married is to set this dollar amount over which if you spend more, you're going to be communicating with your spouse. Right? We just finished telling them that. And then this week, we both had a situation. For us, it's $100. So we both made a purchase of over $100 this week. It's not the new car out there, I promise. But, and we both kind of had a little come-to-Jesus moment. And I started thinking about the very scriptures that I also share with our engaged couples, Ephesians 5. And what does Ephesians 5 says? It says that my job, our job first, is to, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It says that my job is to love her as Christ loved the church, right? And, and, and the scripture says that she's to respect me. And so you know what happened? We just got rebuked by the scripture, and we, got, we reproved, but we got corrected too. How do we make this better? How do I love you? I'm looking there because Kelsey usually sits there. Sorry. For those of you who are not familiar with it, it's not this ghost. Kelsey's usually there. And, um, and how did, you know, she can respect me. I can love her. We got rebuked by the scriptures. We got corrected, and we just got trained in righteousness. Guess what? Our marriage can be better if we obey that scripture, right? So that's what starts to happen with the scripture. It rebukes or approves, it corrects, and it trains us in righteousness. And what's the end goal? The end goal is maturity. Those who surrender to the word's authority make their maturity a priority. And I've decided that's what I want. Those who surrender to the word's authority, those who recognize the word's authority, they make, we make, our maturity a priority. That's what I want. I asked one firefighter, one police person, three soldiers, and one Coast Guard E. Coastie, tell me about your training. What made your training worthwhile? And they said, this much was BS, <laughs> but the real quality parts were two things. One was any mentoring that we got from senior officers was helpful. So the mentoring. And I said, aha, that just kind of points to that thing I just mentioned about verses 13 and 14 where Timothy or Paul was saying, from whom you've learned these sacred writings, it matters, right? The second thing they said was any situation that put them in high stress now, though it was role play, that really helped them when they were on duty, because then, and this is coming mainly from the ranger. So this is the army ranger who he had an, an, an intense training, and then he has been in Iraq and Afghanistan and seen action, so to speak. He said the fact that in our training we went through high stress situations that enabled me, as he said, to turn the volume down emotionally when the high stress situations came on duty. And I said, amen. Because you know that the word does that to us. We get confronted, right? We get rebuked. We get reproved by the scripture. And the volume gets turned up. We should have the fear of the Lord, right? About certain things, about sin in our life. The fear of the Lord comes. But you know, when we get trained by that, when you make it a regular rhythm to let God speak to you, when you let the word do that, 
man, what a great rhythm. And you get trained by it. And then as you live that kind of life, it just becomes easier and easier to obey the Scriptures. It becomes easier for you to recognize the Word's authority and so make your own maturity a priority, as the Scripture has said. You'll be a well-equipped messenger of God. Okay, so there's the Word. Now, if it is God-breathed, okay, if this Scripture is indeed God-breathed, if it is thus to be trusted, believed, obeyed, what do we make of these claims? And I've just mentioned two of them. There's plenty out there, but for, for the fact of us all being able to get to lunch and celebrate our mothers today, we'll just look at two. And I've mentioned the inconsistencies and some sense of irrelevance. Let's just consider a couple things, okay? I'm, I'm helping you to think this through. I'm helping you to, if, if you are among those who are really wrestling with these things, then I'm helping you think through this. If you are more... Uh, find yourself very secure with God's Word and more with colleagues and coworkers and friends who sometimes zing at you, here's some help. First of all, what are things that Jesus said about the Word? Okay, what are things that Jesus said and what are some assumptions that Jesus had about the Word? One of the things that Jesus said or an assumption that He had about the Word is that its message, the messages of the Scriptures are perceived only by the humble. Right? Jesus indicated that those who receive the message of the Scripture are ones who are humble. And here's what I mean. There's plenty of references I could choose, but Luke 8, Jesus is sharing the parable of the seed and the sower. Those of you who remember it, there's four kinds of soil that the seed gets thrown into. And he just says it to the crowd, and then he pulls the disciples, and he says, all right, let me tell you what this actually means. And he explains it, and he says, to you guys, you disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that, and now he's going to quote Isaiah from the Old Testament, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Luke 8.10. That's actually a little confusing, isn't it? Doesn't it actually make, it could be a little worse because now we're just saying God's character is in question because he only lets certain people know the truth. I, I'm not sure how to answer that completely, but I will say this. The context from which Jesus draws that citation from Isaiah 6 is one that the people of God are getting rebuked by, or in. They're getting rebuked, and the hope is that as God rebukes them, they'll come back to him. So that's the best I can do on that one. But Jesus says in this place and in others, only the humble perceive all that I'm doing. The other thing that Jesus said about the word is he said that the Scriptures point to a living person, they point to himself. Jesus is kind of getting into it with the Pharisees in John 5, and he says, hey, you guys, you religious experts, in other words, guys who know the sacred writings, guys who know the God-breathed Scriptures really well, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. That's John 5. 39 to 40. In other words, the Scripture's highest goal is to facilitate a relationship. I happen to think that the Bible's incredibly uh, wonderful, perfect. Uh, you know, um, I, I think that the perfection of the Bible and the Word is just unbelievable. But if someone's going to go toe-to-toe with me on these inconsistencies, that's where I can shift over to. But you know what? The number one thing that God's trying to do here with His Word is to facilitate relationship between you and Him. Is that happening? In other words, the whole forest for the trees. You are, um, you're not seeing the forest for the trees. The trees for you are 
Oh my gosh, I read this proverb. It says I should rebuke a fool, then it says I shouldn't. What do I do? Oh my gosh, the Bible's a mess. I'm thinking, all right, buddy, but look at the whole arc of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Is there a story here? Is there a narrative here that God might be speaking to you through? Can you see that? So, Jesus says these things about the Word, right? That it's perceived by the humble, and He says that it's about relationship. The second thing is, those who have made a lifetime of studying the Bible, they say this. They say that like Jesus, the Word is both divine and human. Like Jesus, the living Word, they say that the Bible is both human and divine. And they use these kind of words. I'm thinking about uh, Fee... um, he was a Gordon Connell guy. Uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, they say this, and we, we read some of their books in the discipleship school. Um, and they say this about the Word. They say uh, that the Scriptures are both eternally relevant and must be dealt with according to their historical particularity. In other words, the Scriptures are eternally relevant. But in order for us to best treat them well, to handle them well, we need to understand their historical particularity, meaning we need to know the book of Genesis to whom was it written and why? The Proverbs, the wisdom literature, to whom was it written and why? And the more we understand that first, then we can get to the eternal relevance part, okay? Isaiah 55 says this. And, um, yeah, excuse me, I just lost my train of thought for a second. Uh, Anyways, all right, so the historical particularity part Let me just share a little bit about the eternal word part. And and this is what the Bible says about itself. It says in Isaiah 55, it says, As rain and snow come down from heaven, don't return but there but water the earth, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, we see, here's here's the eternal relevance part, that God has made sure he's attending to the fact that his word is eternally relevant. Excuse me. And that famous passage from Hebrews 4 in the New Testament, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, there's something about the Word that uncovers our motives, right? We read the Word and typically our motives get exposed. I want to tell you my own journey with the Word and then a couple of other practical helps for you. My own journey in the Word is this. In other words, despite these perceived inconsistencies or this claim by Neil Carter of its irrelevance, my own journey in the Word has been one of this. Over the arc of my own life, I have just discovered more and more that it's increasingly true. That's my own story with the Word. It started at about 9 or 10 years old when I received the Good News Bible from my church with pictures and with simple language. And to give you a clue into kind of the intensity of my personality, I said, I'm going to read this half an hour every night. And I did that. Over my fourth and fifth grade years, I would, before I went to bed, from like 8.30 to 9, I would just read the Bible. And I read that thing through. And I'm so glad because that actually put in a layer of the fear of the Lord. That I'm so glad that in junior high and high school, there's certain places I didn't go because God had deposited his word in me. And I'm really glad. And then along the way, truth would come to me. As a high school student, when I read Romans 7 and 8, and this is where Paul describes his own struggling with sin, I said, oh my gosh, 
I said, have you guys, you know, my mind, I'm thinking, has anyone else read this? This is awesome. I'm not the only person wrestling with my own sinfulness right here. I've got hope because there's another guy, not just any guy, but a guy who's a big deal in the Bible who's wrestled with his own sin. Thank you, God. In college, it was Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me and loved me. You know what that helped me with? In college, I was still intense, and how do I obey all this right now? And something went, oh, thank you, Jesus. When I read Galatians 2.20, because it said, it's Jesus living his life through me. There's a dynamic here where I don't have to do everything, but I need to surrender and let him do it, okay? A couple other highlights. Oh, yeah, this is the best one. Some of you guys heard of this. I started working. That's a good thing. After college, I started working. Amen. Jude, that's good advice. After college, start working. And I started to work at a middle school, and I had sixth graders. And I was pretty generous. You know, if you pressed my theology as a 22-year-old, I would have said, hey, people are good. And it's true, we're good because we're made in God's image, and the Bible says we're made in God's image. But then I had sixth graders. And... We had a real wrestling match all year. We actually ended up calling the sixth grade miracle because they were so nasty to each other all year until somewhere in February, March, I had had enough of it. And I said, and it was a Christian school. These are all Christian kids except for a couple. And I was like, this is crazy. But I read Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if I'd read that as a 17-year-old, I would have said, God, that's harsh. You're probably wrong on that one. But then I taught sixth grade. <laughs> I said, I think that's pretty true. And, of course, it, it reflected right back to me because I said, God, that's true of me. My heart left unchecked always goes to selfishness and evil. And I said, wow, God, your word is true. I see why people don't like it because it offends their pride, but it looks like it's true. So, let me end with this, and we'll celebrate our grads here in a second. I want to end with, how do you deal with the inconsistencies claim? When people come at you, or in your own soul, you're struggling with all the things I mentioned with. Maybe that was discouraging to you when I started saying those things. But the number one thing I do is someone who says, I, I'm not going to read the Bible, or I, you know, why would I care about the Bible? It has so many flaws. I just say, well, what have you read? And tell me what they are. Ninety. 5% of the conversations are changed when you just ask them for actual data on it because they don't have it. But some of them do, like the ones who are actually searching. And for those who are actually searching, I say, as I mentioned to you earlier, I say, do you know enough about what you're reading? In other words, as Jude could explain to us, you need good exegesis and good hermeneutics. You need the historical particularity. You need to know a little bit about who wrote this, why, and when. We need to understand some of that. We're really removed from some of the cultures of back then, and we need to understand what that means. Okay, you need some good help on applying. Okay, it doesn't mean you need to be a rocket scientist or an MDiv, but you need to have some good helps in knowing what you're reading. Or I say things like, I mean, so for example, like Proverbs, knowing wisdom literature, they often set up tensions because there's a truth in that tension. There's a tension between sometimes you correct a fool, sometimes you don't. There's a truth in there somewhere. Or my favorite's the disharmony of the Gospels. You know, the Gospels are four different accounts of Jesus' life. To me, that seals the deal with their authenticity because we know that four authors weren't trying to snow, you know, 
trying to cover us, trying to cover our eyes, trying to pull a snow job on us. We actually know that just like, uh, you know, um, a couple falls ago, we had someone have a heart attack in our service. That's sad. I don't know if the advances are here. We had someone have a heart attack in our service, okay? That's discouraging as a preacher, just so you know. Anyways, but I could ask any number one of you, what happened? And we'd have different stories about what happened with this woman and how she went to the hospital, and she was fine, because uh, Peter and Boozy's grandmother, she is great. She's still alive today. But my point is, with events like that, different eyewitnesses, we get different stories. Same thing with the Gospels. Okay, we have four different stories of Jesus' life, and the message of salvation is the same, though on some of those details, they do not agree. I can't wait to ask Jesus what, you know, whether he... I want to know. You know, actually, the one I really want to know about is the whole money-changing deal. The, the, the tables. Did Jesus get crazy mad early on in ministry or late or both? I can't wait to ask him. It's going to be fun. Okay? So with those inconsistencies, that's you ask. What have you read? What have you found out about them? Um, can I help you understand some more? Okay? With the, irrever- with the irrelevance claim, I just think, man, and um, you know, I just said, I would say, have you read about Jesus? I would come back to Jesus and I would say, have you read the Gospels? Would you read the Gospel of John with me? Can we read through Mark together or Luke? Because I want you to hear, yes, there's some hard things, hard sayings that Jesus says, but I want you to see this Jesus in action. I want you to hear his heart for the marginalized because I think you'll have a different opinion of Jesus. And so, strictly speaking, my answers to Jim Jim Merritt and Neil Carter respectively would be this. Jim Merritt, who throws out all these inconsistencies, I'd actually say to him first, hey, you probably haven't understood what you're reading. Let me help you understand the different genres of biblical literature so you can understand some of those inconsistencies. That's what I'd say to him. And I'd also say, hey, I think you're missing the forest for the trees. Here's the redemptive arc of history. You're getting uptight about this, this, and this. Does this word still speak anything to you? That's what I'd say to Jim Merritt. And to Neil Carter, the one who wrote this, really powerful blog because it just so rings true with what the culture is saying. I'd say, man, sadly, and because I know some of his background, I would say, man, you were a member of, you were duped. You were, Amer- you were a member of American churchianity, okay? A lot of the churchy things that you experienced, I'm so sorry for you. But let me tell you about Jesus because Jesus likes going to the parties where the sinners are, okay? You can still like going to the parties where the sinners are and be with Jesus, you know? Um, you can still love the ones struggling with same-sex attraction and not feel like you're not acknowledging their identity. Well, you know, Jesus was able to do that. That's what I'd say to him. So if the Bible has contradictions, inconsistencies, and irrelevances, they do not prevent us from finding out what it says and applying it to our lives, right? Because, as 2 Timothy three seventeen indicates, those who surrender to the word's authority, make their own maturity a priority. There is a choice. After you've wrestled with the word a little bit, you either, as has often been illustrated, you either let the word judge you, you get under the word, or you stand in judgment of the word. And I just say, ouch, if you're standing in judgment of the word, gosh, I feel sorry for you. Moms who are here, Do you know that there was a mother in Luke 11 who said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Who knows what was going on with that mom? Maybe her own kids were giving her trouble. And she said, my kid's not like Jesus. 
I wish my kid was more like Jesus. But you know what Jesus' response was to that mother? It was, blessed rather are those who hear my word and keep it. So moms, I want to encourage you today. Moms, there is so much rich wealth from the Scripture that you can draw on to help you be a better mom. Brian brought some of that to light today. And to the grads, I want to tell you something. Grads, it is a very unsure world that you're entering in. Just job market-wise, I see some of you um, have callings for ministry in your lives, and it's just a very unsure, unstable A very crazy time on the earth. But Jesus said this. He was actually talking about end times with his friends, his disciples in Matthew 24. And he said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So moms and grads, one of the best things that you can do is to make your own maturity a priority by submitting to the word's authority in your life. Amen?